You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can go and turn to John 15. That's where we're going to be. Once again, my name is Dan Hutchins, typically not the person you'd see on a Sunday morning. And as I love to do and I love to point out, I think there's a conspiracy that goes on behind closed, bo- closed doors where Rodney and Casey get together, they plan out the sermon schedule, and then they give me... Low attendance Sundays. So happy Labor Day. Maybe I'll be back January 1st. Thanksgiving break. Things like that. So, you know. Union with Christ is what we're talking about today. Union with Christ. And the fact is, is that not only are we utterly dependent and incapable on our own to save ourselves, we're also utterly dependent and incapable on our own to continue to grow into the image of Christ apart from Christ. So not only are we utterly helpless on our own to save ourselves from our sin, but we're also utterly incapable and utterly dependent helpless on our own to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. It can't happen on our own. So we're going to be in a passage where Jesus illustrates what it means to be united with him and what all that entails, why that's necessary. And what are some things, what is the way in which the spirit works in our lives? How does this happen? So Jesus uses an illustration in John chapter 15 But before you understand what happens, and before we get into John 15, we have to understand what happens in John 13 and 14. Because John 15 is right in the middle of a long discourse, conversation, and teaching that's called the farewell discourse. This is the last part of Jesus' ministry. John 13 through 17 records for us, and this is a real, I mean, it's a real treat to get to eavesdrop on Jesus' conversation with his disciples moments before he begins his crucifixion. So they're up in this upper room and Jesus knows that the very purpose that he was created for, the very reason that he came to earth, was so that he would die on the cross and ultimately bear on himself the very wrath of his father for all of those who would believe in him. So Jesus senses that this is just moments away from beginning. So in the upper room, as he's having conversation with his disciples, he's got a very troubled demeanor. The reason why Jesus is so troubled is because John 13 tells us that he's going to actually have to go away from his disciples. That after dying and rising from the dead, he's actually going to depart and leave the disciples. And Jesus loves the disciples. Spent three years with the disciples. Got great friends with with the disciples. Additionally, John 13 also says that Judas, one of his very own, is going to betray him. And even in John 13, Jesus already initiates that process and sends Judas out to betray him. And that's got to sting for Jesus. That's got to hurt him. And also, Peter, even one of his innermost three tight friends of the twelve disciples, Peter was one of his closest friends. Jesus predicts in John 13 that Jesus is, or that Peter is actually going to betray him. And also, and most importantly, the reason that Jesus is so troubled is that he knows that he's going to have to experience and undergo relational separation from the Father. 
that Jesus is just moments away from having the actual literal wrath of his own father. Something that he does not deserve. The only person that's lived a sinless life that does not deserve wrath from God is about to take upon himself the very wrath of his father. So Jesus knows that he's about to undergo this relational separation where the father makes him sin and pours out his wrath on him. As a result, this upper room scene where we find ourselves is a very tense atmosphere where Jesus is very troubled in spirit. This in turn causes the disciples to be troubled. So in John 14, the very first verse, it says, do not let your hearts be troubled, but believe in me. And so this is just an interesting thing about Jesus, that even in the midst of his own personal trouble and, and chaos, he sees troubled Trouble looks on his disciples. And he actually goes out of his way in John 14 to comfort his disciples. So he says to them, believe in me and believe also in God. And he gives them two specific things to hope in and to believe in as a means to put the rest their troubled spirits. The first thing he tells them in the first half of John 14 is he says, don't be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. Where although I'm physically being separated from you, for now it's only temporary. And one day you will actually leave earth. And you will come home with me. And there I will have already prepared a place for you. And we will be physically reunited in heaven one day. So don't have troubled spirits. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious because I'm leaving. Because one day we're actually going to be physically reunited. Additionally, in the latter part of John 14, Jesus says this to the disciples. Not only am I going to leave and prepare a place for you, but I'm also going to send to you back my very spirit to be with you. And so on the one hand, Jesus says, I'm going to go away for a while and physically be apart from you for a while and create for you a home in heaven. But I'm also going to send back down to you my very spirit to continue to be with you and in you. So the whole theme of John 14, which leads right in to John 15, is union with Christ. That the disciples should not be concerned and troubled because not Jesus is not just going to leave them, but he's also going to send back down to them his very spirit to indwell them and continue to grow them and lead them and guide them. This is what we call union with Christ. That today we are united with Christ, the person of Christ, by means of his very spirit, the very spirit of Christ. But this is unfamiliar language to the disciples. Like the disciples are used to Jesus and them being united, not in spirit, but by him physically being with them. It's familiar language for us. We talk about being indwelt and having the Holy Spirit inside of us. But this is news to the disciples. They're not used to this sort of thinking. And as Jesus is describing in John 14, the role of the Holy Spirit, this helper, his very spirit that's going to come down. I think Jesus looked out and as he was saying these things in John 14, he was noticing that they're confused. There's some confused looks on their faces. I totally know the feeling of explaining something to a crowd and being like, I think I'm confusing everybody right now. So what does Jesus do? He says, I'll give you an illustration about this. Let me illustrate to you 
what life in my spirit is going to be like. How's it going to work, Jesus, when you depart from us physically and send back down to us your spirit? How's that going to work? We're not used to that. That's unfamiliar language for the disciples. So John 15, this vine branches illustration, simply illustrates what it looks like for Christians to be united with Christ by means of his very spirit. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage again one more time, start to finish. And I want us to look at this passage and see four things. And this passage is neatly divided into two different parts. So the first eight verses are Jesus actually giving us the illustration. And verses 9 through 17 are Jesus, is Jesus actually expounding and explaining the illustration. And this is a really good thing because illustrations are not meant to completely describe everything exhaustively. That's not the point of using illustrations. Every illustration has its own limitations. And Jesus knows this. And so what he does for us is he not only gives us the illustration, but he really hones in on some specific details that he's trying to teach the disciples about what this illustration means for us. And so let's look at the passage one more time. John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Verse 5, the key verse. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide." So that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you, may be, so that you may love one another. There's a lot of things in this passage. It's a really dense illustration with lots of things. We're going to look at four of the big things. And so the first thing that we can notice, what does it mean that we're united with Christ? Number one is that it involves Christ himself abiding in you. And so we see that right at the beginning in verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself and let it abide and it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then even in verse four, chapter 14, verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, the disciples, you know this spirit for he dwells with you and will be in you. The reality is, is that for those of us who are in Christ, the very spirit of Jesus Christ abides in you. And if you'll notice, Jesus is, when he's talking to the disciples, specifically the verse we just read, his disciples, he goes, look at the disciples. You know this spirit because this spirit that I'm talking about is in me and dwells with you. And so what Jesus is trying to point out is that you and I and the disciples, we don't get some random spirit that gets inside of us, but we actually have inside of us the very spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That it's not like we get, you know, I think sometimes we dwindle down the fact that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. As if God the Father is like gold status and God the Son is silver and God the Holy Spirit is bronze and we get the bronze level. But the fact of the matter is, is that you are indwelt by nothing more than the very, the literal very spirit of Jesus Christ in all of his grace and in all of his glory. So this is a really big deal to Jesus. I mean, this is the same spirit that brought Jesus into the world and the same spirit that brought Jesus up as a boy and into a man. And this is the same spirit that empowered Jesus on his three-year ministry to do all kinds of crazy things. And this is the same spirit that ultimately led Christ to the cross and ultimately resurrected Jesus. That same spirit, the literal presence of Jesus Christ is actually abiding in believers. You can't dwindle that down. Like, you can't think to yourself, well, God the Father's here, God the Son's here, and we get God the Spirit, and that's like third place, like junior varsity. We have the actual, literal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself dwelling inside of us. Jesus says, you abide in me, and I will actually abide in you. That's union with Christ himself. That is having fellowship with the person of Jesus Christ by means of his very spirit. So when he says to the disciples, I'm going over to heaven and preparing a place and I'm sending down back down to you my very spirit, he's meaning I am sending myself back down to you. That's why we sing the song, the old hymn that says, and heaven came down and glory filled my soul. It's like Jesus is saying, I myself am coming down via my spirit and I will fill you and I will be in you. Let me tell you why that's an important thing. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God created humans before sin ever existed. You want to know how God created humans before sin ever existed? There's two things, two specific things. First is God created humans in perfect union and fellowship with God. Being truly human the way that God designed true humans to be. 
is when we're fellowshipping with God. Before sin ever existed in the world, God created humans specifically to dwell, to have fellowship with him. Additionally, God created humans before sin entered the world undefiled and uncorrupted by sin. And so true humanity is being united to God and to walking in obedience to God. And what Jesus Christ does is he demonstrates what it means to be truly human by living in a fallen world, perfectly united with God and perfectly free from sin. He demonstrates to all of us what it means to live life on a fallen world as a truly human person, the way God designed it to be. So what he does is he leaves us and sends his spirit back down to us to abide in us so that we could in turn grow in what it means to be truly human. What I'm trying to say, simply put, is being Christ-like is what it means to be truly human, the way that God intended for it. And you could state that negatively. You could say to be not like Christ, to pursue desires of the flesh and sin is actually to go against what God himself, how God has designed humans to operate. And I'll give you just a quick illustration of this. A while back, over probably four or five years ago, we had a young man come through our ministry. um, And I'll never forget this individual. We had tons of conversations And this young man, 17, 18 years old, was actively involved in drinking and he was actively doing drugs and he was actively having sex with women and he was actively doing all kinds of things. And we had tons of conversations. And I remember as as we would talk about his life and his choices and the things that he's doing, almost a like an almost tangible sense of shame and guilt, embarrassment, humiliation, and just an overall darkened demeanor would just come out of him. Like as he was talking about the sort of life that he was living, it's like he just became dark. You have to wonder, is that really the way that God created and designed humans to function? And the answer is emphatically no, that God has created humans to function so in a way so much better than that. By being truly human, by being Christ-like, we're actually being how God actually designed humans to function. And Jesus Christ demonstrates that in his humanity and then sends to us his very spirit to help guide us and walk us in that, to continue to help teach us who, who is Jesus Christ. Here's something about the Christian life. The Christian life is not limited to just trying to do better. The Christian life is not just primarily about doing good things. Although it includes that, it's primarily about being like Jesus Christ. That is the Christian life. It's not simply outward moral actions that are good, although that involves that, sure. But it's actually and primarily and specifically about seeing who Jesus is, about the Holy Spirit continuing to teach us and show us more about who Jesus is, and then us modeling that and being Christ-like in our life. That is true humanity. So the first thing 
about being united with Christ is that Christ himself is actually in you. He's actually abiding in you. And it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It is all about God's grace. God does not look through the corridor in time and see good things about you that then causes him to send his son for you and then put the son's spirit inside of you. It has nothing to do with you. It's all about his grace. This first point is cultivated in the soil of God's grace. It has nothing to do with you. That should really humble us. I mean, it should take the pride right out of us to know that Christ abides in us, but it has nothing to do with how good you are. Nothing. And so then we get number two, that it involves us abiding in Christ. The second thing about union with Christ is it involves you and I abiding in Christ. Let's read verse four and five again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if the first point is all about God's grace, the reason that Christ abides in you has nothing to do with how good you are. We have no merit. We do not merit or earn any of that. It's all about his grace. But what happens is that when we receive the abiding work of Christ inside of us, it's not like God's grace is some cloud that stands over us where we passively receive the blessings of God. But what grace does, what the indwelling abiding work of Christ does, is it actually hits you in the soul and causes you to actively engage and participate in this abiding. So grace is not something that we just passively take in and do nothing with, but grace comes into our life and penetrates us in such a way that it actually creates and causes us to actively participate and engage in this abiding process. So that we actively abide in Christ. You might be wondering, what does it mean to abide in Christ? That's a great question that Christ actually answers for us. So we don't have to drift into speculation because Christ actually identifies three specific ways that believers abide in Christ. And so the first one is we abide in Christ by abiding in his love. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. The first thing that, re- that comes when we abide in Christ is we abide in his love. That means that we create space in our mind to think about and meditate upon and understand the sheer magnitude of Christ's love for us. That while we were still sinners, weak and sinful and undeserving, even in that moment, even in the worst possible moment, even then Christ demonstrates love for us By dying on the cross for us and taking upon himself the penalty that was supposed to go to us. And one of the problems 
One of the reasons why we might be spiritually bankrupt here is because we're too crowded in our minds. And one of the reasons, one of the things that we do to abide in Christ is by creating some space in our minds to think about, understand, know, reflect upon the fact that Christ loves you. I mean, do you hear that? You might be like, well, I'm a mess up and I'm a sinner and I don't deserve it. And there's no way that Christ can love me. And even in the midst of your mess ups and even in the midst of your failures, Christ still looks at you and says, I love you. And one of some of for some of us in here, one of our biggest obstacles sometimes is that we think that we have to actually clean ourselves up and make ourselves better before we can abide in Christ and before we can pursue Christ and before we can think about Christ's love. But it's, that's backwards. You don't clean yourself up to go to Christ and abide in Christ. You abide in Christ now because even now he loves you. And that is the cross. That's Romans where it says, Christ demonstrates love for you that while you were still at your worst, vile, undeserving, weak, he looks at you and says, I love you. So Jesus says to his disciples, the way that you abide in me, one of the ways that you abide in me is by giving your minds space to think about my love for you. To know that the vine loves the branches. That the vine is, is wants good things for the branches. The vine sacrificed and suffered for the branches. So think about that. You can't, you know, overly crowded thinking that gives no space to meditating, reflecting upon the love that God has for you could be a really, really big problem spiritually. So Christ says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. And secondly, he says, let his word abide in us. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if the first thing is about Christ's love and giving space in your mind to think about and reflect upon the fact that Christ does love you, the second point about abiding in Christ is giving your life space to let his word come into you. So one of the ways that we abide in Christ is by letting the word of Christ come into our lives and creating space in our life for God's word to dwell in us and operate in us. And this is not, you know, it's one thing to read the Bible because you ought to. It's a whole other thing to open up God's word and create space in your life for God's word to come into your life and operate for the reason, for the very hope that you might fellowship with Christ. So two completely different ways of reading the Bible. One says I should and one says I hope that in this process as I let the word of God come into me, and as I, op- as I let it operate inside of my life, that I could actually experience a deeper fellowship with the Lord Jesus himself. So Jesus says, abide in my love. Give your minds space for me. Give your minds space to think about God's love. And also give your life room for God's word. Abide in God's word. And just like one of the reasons why we might be spiritually bankrupt is because of an outright failure to understand the love that Christ has for you. One of the reasons that we might be spiritually bankrupt 
is because our lives are too crowded. Our lives are too crowded so that there's no space in our life for God's word to come in and operate. And the Bible is clear in other parts where it says that as God's word comes inside of you and we give it space to operate, that it actually transforms us from the inside and helps us think God-like thoughts and think more about how Christ thinks and then subsequently helps us to live more like Christ. So abiding in God, abiding in Christ involves loving God, understanding God's love for you, and involves letting God's word come in you. And thirdly, it involves displaying God's love to other believers. So if you look at verse 12, this is my commandment that you have, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, he may give it to you. And then lastly, these things I command so that you will love one another. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if I were Satan, which is kind of a weird thing to say, I would one of my chief objectives top of the list would be to try to get Christian believers fighting with, arguing with, criticizing, quarreling with, biting and devouring other Christian believers. The reason I think that is because it is everywhere in the New Testament. In fact, you cannot read the New Testament without really picking up on the theme that God and the writers and Jesus of the New Testament all think the same way. That one of the calls on a disciple's life is to love other disciples, specifically other believers. Even in John 13, just two chapters before this, Jesus says, You disciples, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. By how you love one another. Specifically, yes, we're generally supposed to love everybody, but specifically called to love other disciples. Now, if I were Satan, one of my chiefest concerns and one of my top priorities, if I could just get the church, God's disciples, not displaying God's love towards each other, that sends a message out to the world that is absolutely opposed to the very message of the gospel itself. So this is, this is a call for believers to love one another. This isn't an optimistic, naive call to no conflict. But it's even in the midst of conflict that our hearts would still bend outwards towards each other, displaying the love of God towards each other. So if you're in here and you harbor criticism, a harsh spirit, anger, frustration, if you're biting and devouring other believers with your words and with your actions, Jesus has an enormous, places an enormous weight on that. I'd like to invite you to repent of that today. That one of the ways we abide in Christ is by actually displaying the love of Christ to other believers. And that if we're not doing that, 
mean, Jesus' logic here is airtight. If we're not doing that, we're actually sending a message out to the world that is a contrary message to the very gospel message itself. So the third way that we abide in Christ, that we actively pursue and engage in fellowship with Christ, is by how we treat each other. Jesus cares about that. Jesus gets parts interesting that in union with Christ, he cares. He says, one of the ways that you're united with me is by how you operate and treat and display love towards my other disciples. It's amazing that that, it doesn't seem like that's part of it. It doesn't seem like that makes sense. But to Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, union with Christ involves displaying love to other people. So that's the second thing that we see. So what does this mean that the Spirit is inside of us and that we're in union with Christ? It means first that Christ himself abides in us. It means secondly that that we then abide in Christ. And it means thirdly that it requires the pruning work of God. And this, this does not preach well, but we're going to talk about it. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. I can tell we're all excited here. Verses 1 through 2, right at the beginning. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus, in this imagery, in this illustration, introduces to us a third party that's present. We've got Jesus, the vine. We've got us, the branches, united with each other via his spirit. And then we've got God, the vine dresser. And there's a lot of speculation about what it is that God does as the vine dresser. But what Jesus does is he specifically talks about one activity of God as the vine dresser. And that is the pruning work of God in the life of believers. And so I was reading this week. I don't really know much about this kind of stuff, branches and vine. Let me rephrase, I don't know anything about this stuff, so I read some stuff, which makes me an expert in it. And so what I know, though, is that the, the more skilled the pruner, the deeper he can cut into the branch to help weed out the imperfections without killing the branch. This is exactly what God does in our life. This is two things that God knows about you. You know, two things that he knows. This is how infinitely sovereign and wise he is. He knows right now, every person in this room, exactly where you fall short. He knows exactly where you are imperfect. And the word prune actually means to cleanse. He knows exactly where you need cleansing. And he doesn't just know that about every believer. He also knows exactly what to put you through to help actually cleanse you from the imperfections. God knows you so intimately. He's so near to you. I mean, he's so close to you. He abides inside of you. He's closer to you than even the very breath that fills your lungs right now. That's how close Jesus is to you. And in that, he knows specifically the imperfections that you have in life. And not only that, he knows exactly what sort of painfully providential seasons to allow in your life to help prune, to help weed out, to help purify the things that are not right in you. And so we see two things about 
pruning specifically, that it strengthens. That pruning has as its goal a strengthening aspect. And that when a farmer, when the vine dresser pruned the branch, he not only prunes the branch for the short-term harvest that's about to happen, but he also prunes the branch to make it a long-term branch so that in the seasons to come, in the years to come, that that branch would continue to bear fruit, more fruit, more fruit, more fruit. So there's a longevity aspect to pruning. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to go a lifetime following Christ. One of the ways, one of the means that God continually draws us into himself is by allowing providentially painful seasons to happen that actually produce a spiritual strengthening inside of us. Now, one of the aspects of pruning is to strengthen, to spiritually strengthen you. Another aspect of pruning is that it's really painful that the pruner, God, can take a knife and actually penetrate it into the branches to weed out. That whole process is painful. We get a great illustration of this in the life of Joseph. I mean, Joseph's a great illustration of this. I mean, he comes up, I mean, he's a teenage punk. Comes up, I mean, he's got his coat of many colors on that his dad just gave him. He's the youngest of 12 brothers and his dad clearly favors him, gives him this coat of many colors and he wears it and he comes up into the living room and he's got all his brothers there. He says, hey, I had this dream last night that every one of you were bowing down to me, the younger brother. You would a punk, man. That is code for beatdown. That's what that is. <laughs> I have a twin brother, and he's stronger than me. And if I said that to even him, I beat down. Immediate beatdown. He still does it to me today. That's another story. I don't want to get into that. Anyway. <clears throat> but then Joseph, his brothers get angry at him. And they sell Joseph into slavery, and Joseph goes to Egypt. And this is like an up-and-down life for Joseph. I mean, at one point, he is over Egypt, managing Egypt. And at another point, he is in prison for something he didn't do for years. Spends years of his life in prison for something he never committed, something he didn't do. Then he gets out, goes back in, up and down, up and down, up and down. He gets to the very end of his life, and he's in charge of Egypt again after a long life of pruning. And his brothers actually come back to him and are bowing down to him as the manager, as the leader of Egypt. And rather than saying, ha ha, I told you so, brothers, remember the dream I had. He looks at them with such wisdom and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Like that took a lifetime of God weeding out and pruning Joseph so that he could, at the end of his life, have that much wisdom to say something like that. I'll give you another illustration. I started playing tennis last year. This is good. This is humbling. It's a personal illustration. Really personal here. So Rodney introduces me to tennis. This time last year, it's the first time I've ever picked up a racket. Rodney's been playing for like 10 years. He was practically, that's important for you to know. And so, um, so I start playing with him. And this time last year, we finished out the year. I would win some and he would win some. And it seemed pretty fair, pretty even. Like I would win some tennis matches, he would win some. And then the year 2012 hits. So I was hyping up year 2012. Our tennis season's going to be awesome. We have a year 2012 season. I feel really good about my game. I have in eight months, have not won one tennis match. 
Do you know what it's like for a hyper-competitive person to lose to the same person at the same thing for eight months? You know what that's like? I am li- we've literally played at least once a week for eight months. That's like at least 0-32 is my record. At least that. That is God speeding up my sanctification <laughs> one tennis match at a time. Just funneling them right out there. But the reality is that God is going to allow painfully providential seasons in life. And what this passage does is it gives us a lens to see and language to understand why it is that that happens. It's so that he can take the pruning knife to your life and ultimately cleanse and purify things that are imperfect, that are impure. So rather than in those seasons throwing our hands up to God, And asking God, why would you put me through this? We can rather bow our heads to God and say, God, whatever your pruning hand wants to do in my life, let it be. So what this this passage does, that part of being united with Christ is that we're united with him in his suffering as well. You know, the vine suffered a lot. Like Jesus Christ suffered a lot and we're united to the vine via his Holy Spirit because we're going to suffer a lot. And the reason that the vine Jesus suffered a lot wasn't because he needed pruning. He's the son of God. Jesus Christ doesn't need to be pruned. Pruned of what? He is perfect. But the reason why Jesus Christ suffered is so that when we suffer as united to Christ... We could also share 2 Corinthians 1 abundantly in Christ's comfort. I mean, how awesome is it that Jesus can look at you in the middle of your suffering and go, I know what that's like. I know exactly what you, I know what that feels like to have people completely let you down. I know what that feels like. Jesus Christ more than anybody knows the gravity of living in a fallen world. And part of the reason why he became human was so that he would suffer, not so that he would be pruned, but so that he could comfort the branches when we're united with him and we go through suffering, we could experience the very comfort of Christ. So part of abiding in Christ and part of Christ abiding in us and part of being united with Christ in his spirit is that the Father is going to, at times, put inside of us, lead us through painfully providential seasons. And I like this passage because it gives us language to understand and a lens to see why those seasons happen and why they need to happen. They need to happen. And I know that, you know, for those of you that are in here that have been Christians for any period of time at all, you can probably attest to the fact that maybe outside of God's word, maybe the preaching of God's word, what has grown you more than anything has been painfully, providentially painful seasons, that that's part of being a Christian. But it's encouraging that Christ himself suffered not to be pruned, but to help us as we're being pruned, to comfort us in our own affliction. And lastly, I'll end with this. So the first thing is it involves Christ himself abiding in us. Secondly, it involves us abiding in Christ. Thirdly, it requires the pruning work of God. And fourthly, all of these things, these three things we just mentioned, 
They have as their goal a joy-filled Christian life. If you read verse 11, it says just that. These things I have spoken to you. Listen to this. That my joy may be in you. That the joy of Christ as he lived life in perfect fellowship with the Father, perfectly free from sin, that perfect joy that he has, that his joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And here's the reality about the Christian life. Just like Christ-likeness is truly human, Christ-likeness is a joy-filled way of living life. That when we're living the way that God originally designed and created humans to live, we're actually in that moment experiencing great joy in life. That notice Jesus to his disciples, he doesn't come to his disciples and say, let me tell you why you shouldn't be troubled, because I'm going to fix all your problems. Because I'm going to take away all the obstacles in life. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make life really easy for you. But Jesus comes to his disciples and says, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to go to work inside of you. I'm going to abide in you and you and me and the Father is going to prune you. And all of that has as their goal a joy-filled Christian life. And so to state it negatively, the further you drift from the vine the further you relationally are disconnected from Christ, the further, the more, the more you drift from fellowship with Christ, the more joyless your life becomes. And joy is this deep abiding trust in knowing God as we fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ, and partake in this union with Christ. There's this sort of joy that happens inside of us because that's how we're designed to live. And so all of these things, union with Christ, him and us, us and him, the Father pruning us, have as their goal your own joy, the fullness of joy. And so I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to close with communion this morning. This is a great way, just like we were talking about earlier, that one of the things we do as, abide, as we abide in Christ is we abide in his love and we get a chance to declutter our brains for just a moment and to have a picture of the actual cross of Christ. That's what the commun- the Lord's Supper is. So I want to give you three encouragements with communion. First, to remember, to reflect upon who Christ is and what Christ has done. To let, to think about it. To think about the person and work of Christ. To think about the fact that he loves you right now. And if you're in Christ, he does not look at mistakes and mess-ups and sin. He sees you as child, as son, as daughter. So what the, what the Lord's Supper does is it gives us some space to think about the work of Christ. And secondly, you can repent of sin. So you can think about your life if there's unconfessed, personal, individual sin in your life. The Bible is clear that before we approach the Lord's Supper the communion table, that we're in right relationship with him. That there's repentance, that there's a relational coming together with Christ so that where you've fallen short in areas, you can confess those and repent of those things. 
And thirdly, the Lord's Supper, it always has a rejoicing aspect to it. That as we remember the cross and as we repent of sin, we can actually in turn rejoice over what Christ has done for us. So before you run off to the table, maybe you just take a second and you just think about the cross and you think you declutter your mind for a little bit. And you give space in your mind to think about the love that God has for you. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, I, rather than taking the Lord's Supper, we would invite you to take Christ himself. And that the Lord's Supper is actually reserved for already saved Christians. But you can be a saved Christian today by taking Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the Bible says that the wrath of God that's supposed to go to you comes off of you and goes to Christ. And then Jesus, in turn, looks at you and gives you his righteousness, his right standing with God. So rather than taking the Lord's Supper, we just invite you to take Christ today. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for just who you are, that you abide in us, in us and you. And God, as as Father, you also prune us to make us more like you. God, that it causes us to be more fruitful in life. That by pruning us, you actually are producing inside of us the very fruit of the Spirit of Christ. So God, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray that, uh, God, that we would abide in you, that we would declutter our lives to let the word come in and declutter our minds to let your love come in. God, that we would actively love other believers, other disciples with the sort of love that you've shown us. And God, that you would give conviction to those of us that need conviction. You would allow repentance for those of us that need to repent. And that you would create in us deep joy and rejoicing over who you are and what you've done. As you're there with your head bowed and your eyes shut, I just want to read these lyrics to you that we're about to sing. Could we with ink the ocean fill? The whole ocean were full of God's ink. And were the skies of parchment made, if the whole sky was a scroll, and were every stalk or tree on earth a pen, and every man a scribe by trade, every man was a scribe and every tree was a pen, and the whole ocean was filled with ink, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole those stretched from sky to sky. God, you love us. I pray that your love for us would hit us and compel us and cause us to love you, to glorify you, and to abide in you. So I pray over the next moments as we take the Lord's Supper and as we sing, that it would be glorifying and honoring to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.